Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Horatio Clare, exploring what makes us human, recorded live as part of Berwyn's Salon North. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Hello, Harrogate. Paris of the North. <laughs> this bit is the one you've been looking forward to, between two brilliant women who actually know things. There's a white guy in a suit, middle class, middle-aged, going to tell you how to live your lives and have better futures. You must be crazy. (laughs) In fact, I think I'm the only one of us who's got a certificate or has been certified by a professional to say that I'm sane. (laughs) So the idea that somebody like me should have any advice for people like you is clearly mad. Um, So mad comes from gemidas, proto-Germanic, meaning changed for the worse. And as long as I don't spout any Latin, with any luck, you won't elect me an MP before I leave. (laughs) I guess you couldn't get Boris. He's probably working on the Latin for U-turn on the windfall tax. (laughs) Change for the worst. My contention is that human life, in fact, is a process in some ways of change for the worst. If you think you start off in loving arms with a pair of beautiful breasts to suck whenever you want, and milk comes out, and then after that you have to go to school, go to work, buy a house... Mortgage, pension, old age, death. (laughs) Change for the worse. And I think madness is very much part of us. I think insomnia is a form of madness. Anyone who's had it will know it. Anxiety, depression, surely. Grief. They're all normal, everyday parts of this human animal that Melanie talked so wonderfully about. Um, But who says what and in what voice and looking like what? I went to the University of York. I know what you're thinking. Southerner. <laughs> really matters. So if I stand in front of a parliamentary select committee and I say, our treatment of mental health is a disaster, we're over-medicating, there's not enough therapy, people aren't being listened to, the entire model is broken, I might be listened to. If a man from Wierke says the same thing with his long hair and his wild eyes and his baggy clothes when a psychiatrist has prescribed him a pill, and he says, it's fucking me up. It's messing me up. I can feel it. He's not listened to. In fact, if he doesn't take the pill, they'll hold him down and they'll inject him with it. And the only reason they didn't when I was in the ward in Wakefield was because they put it to me. I, when I arrived, I was as mad as two cats. And they said, please don't not take this pill, because if you don't, Horatio, we're going to have to inject you, and that's really upsetting for all of us. And that was brilliant, because it changed the dynamic. Suddenly, it wasn't them, the power, talking to me, the lunatic, which I was resisting, of course, with all my being. We were on the same side and addressing the same problem. And that's essentially the thrust of my argument this evening, is that we've conceived it wrong. So how I know about this, um, it started in the end of 2018, and I published two books. I was... Starting a new job at Manchester, I was ferociously ambitious for everything. I was on a constant tour of talking and 
promoting and trying to get a message across about seasonal affective disorder, from which I also suffer. Um, and I really minded. And I was getting home at the end of the night and trying to impersonate a good father. And I was cheating and I was lying and I was using small amounts of cannabis because I knew it had a history of making me high. But I was happy to use that as an accelerant to get it all done because I suffer from perfectionism. And it, the disaster became more and more fun, really. You start off in hypermania, which is elevated speech and thoughts and kind of racing ideas. You don't really need to sleep much. And then you move into mania, which is the same but worse. So your ideas now are grandiose and ferocious and any opposition really upsets you and you get angry and storm off. You can't stop talking. You can't wait for people to finish. It's just like you, but triple speed. And then psychosis. And when I first heard of psychosis, I assumed it meant you know, running around the streets naked with a knife, um, which it can manifest as. But in fact, it's characterized by delusions, which are unreasonable beliefs. And the wonderful woman who sectioned me, who I later went back and interviewed, said, I don't mind people being nutty. I like nutty. What I have to work out is, are they nutty in a way that's odd for them and dangerous to them or other people? And as you can tell, I'm very persuasive. You know, I've, I've got all this privilege and power, and I used it to repeatedly talk myself out of being sectioned. Um, so it was very hard. And the hardest line in this story is between there are really two ways of going mad in this country. One uh, is to be not white, not rich, uh, not well-connected, and you're much more likely to end up in A&E. You're much more likely to be in a police cell. The police deal with the mad almost more than they deal with the bad, and they don't get much training for it, bizarrely. They have to use their common sense, which is often wonderful. The police with us were fantastic. And, of course, the other way to go mad is the way I went mad, which is using every means at my disposal to stay free and stay crazy. And it ended up, I mean, it was great. Honestly, I was engaged to Kylie Minogue, like actually engaged <laughs> to Kylie Minogue. And, and when I interviewed people about this later on, they said, well, that's quite common. We have quite a few Kylie Minogues. <laughs> so there's the 90s for you. And, you know, she's obviously a good person. And we were, we had, you know, the plans were very strong and solid for a very happy life. Um, and I was working very hard with MI6, who were using me as a free agent because... What is happening is a revolution in consciousness that all world governments know about and are all talking to each other about, apart from Putin, obviously, and Xi Jinping, behind our backs. But even they were involved. The poor Ukrainian couple on a skiing holiday when I was loopy, because I speak a bit of Russian, I was sure they were there for, you know, to bring Putin into the fold. So I just, Rebecca said, my poor, suffering, wonderful ex-partner, you just kept talking to them in Russian and they fucking hated it. And that was before... Uh, and we were working very hard to bring about this benign revolution of consciousness, which also involved aliens. And if we didn't get it right, and you'll see from the Daily Mail the day before yesterday, they are true. So, you know, um, if we didn't get it right, it was going to be terrible. Uh, and so I was having to listen to the radio, talk back to the radio. There was a camera in my radiator, which was useful. You know, I, I did a lot of broadcasting. Um, but in the end, in order to help this process hurry up, I was just praying for someone to walk out from behind the curtain and say, Horatio, my name is Dorothy, I am from MI6, you are right, we now need you to go and lie down for a couple of weeks. And if someone had said that, I would have gone so happily. But they didn't, so I ran my car off the road and danced naked on top of a gamekeeper's Land Rover in front of his dogs. And he came out in the middle of the night, the poor man, and he said, 
what the fuck are you doing? And I said, I think I'm in need of help. So I, I wasn't bereft of self-awareness. And that's the thing about, the, you know, the mad and the depressed are not bereft of self-awareness. If you lie to us, if you're um, slightly bluffing, supposing you're a psychiatrist who's not worked very hard, hasn't got much time, uh, really has a very set way of dealing with people, they're going to see right through you, and that's where the problems start. Um, so I was sectioned, and I was trying to build a university of world peace in my flat by digging through the roof to, uh, to the flat above. Um, and my little boy, so I've been very frank with him about all this, and he looked at it and he went, oh, Dad, you know, after I'd come back down. So the way to deal with something like the stigma of being sectioned is to tell everybody. And it's the thing that I would most press on you, is that if you're safe with your own position, so you're not going to be fired by your boss because you admit to being depressed sometimes, then the greatest favour you can do to the rest of society is be open about your, where you are on the scale of you know, well-being to trauma, well-being to distress. I don't even like the words mental health. They sound grey and depressing to me and stigmatising. I much prefer well-being, distress, trauma, these things we can understand. But when you sit in front of a psychiatrist, which I did, and he looked like me, I've come dressed as a psychiatrist this evening, <laughs> and I was wearing my mate Doug's Crocs, I'd cut my own hair, you know, because Kylie likes that kind of thing, and he said, so you can get out of here. I'd presented a sane after 60 hours, two doses of quetiapine, absolutely wonderful. Medication is a lifesaver when it's used in the right way. You can get out of here, but you have to take one of these pills. And he gave me three sheets of paper, aripiprazole, sodium evaporate, and lithium. And they're all long-term drugs. Choose. And I thought, why am I choosing? Surely you're the... It turns out it was honest. Psychiatrists don't know, really, still, nor does academic psychiatry, nor does the Centre for Psychosis Studies in King's, how these pills work. They work according to hypotheses, and the hypotheses are unproven. But the wonderful thing about sitting in front of somebody in a suit who has total power over you if you're detained under Section 2 or 3 of the Mental Health Act, they're your responsible clinician, is that you trust their authority, and they're going to use it, because psychiatrists are good people, for your benefit. The problem is they don't know how you're going to react to this pill. So they prescribe by trial and error, and that's basically based on side effects. So it was right in a way, it was honest, that I made the decision to have lithium. Uh, no, sorry, I made the decision to have um, the other one, aripiprazole. And I hesitated over it because I very, being a 90s kid, didn't trust legal drugs. Uh, I very quickly decided I was going to cut my own dose. I'll take a half, as we used to say in York. And it went down with me very quickly to nothing. The pills were making me feel sick and miserable and blurred and other side effects. They have about 20 to 40 side effects, including hyperspending, hypersexuality, I didn't need any help with that, early death. Um, I came off them. I came off them on my own. And I started researching. And the reasons I did it were, I, when I first heard psychiatrist, it was back in the 80s, it was Dr. Anthony Clare in the psychiatrist's chair. Boom, 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 15, 20, 30 minutes of in-depth interview about somebody's life and circumstances. I thought that's what they did. But they don't. They look at you and they diagnose you according to the International Classification of Diseases, 
which is based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is an American invention, by, invented by the American uh, Psychiatric Association. It's a classification manual, presents as this, has three of these ten symptoms, is therefore this, should therefore take this medication. That's it. And that's a disaster. They're trying to help. The brave ones come to medication last. But they haven't got much time. They haven't got a, a culture of freedom, of freedom of thought and freedom of action. The most frightened people I have worked with since coming out, and I now do a lot of workshops with the NHS, were the Critical Psychiatry Network. It turned out, we worked out, that they were fearing an er psychiatrist who would come down and say, you told that person to go to the museum and eat five a day and sleep eight hours and you didn't prescribe? You're radical. You know, and in Britain, to be radical is to be Corbyn. It's to be wrong, it's to be fear. We're going to have to get a lot braver, all of us, as individuals and establishments, if we're not going to keep going down a road which is disastrous. So if I say to you, you've had a breakdown for completely understandable reasons, there's every reason to suspect that if we change the way you are living, you will not have another one. You will leave that office very differently from if I say to you, you are bipolar, it is a lifetime condition, there is no cure, we recommend one of these drugs. I am absolutely not anti-medication, but psychiatrists themselves will tell you that it is massively and wildly and misunderstandingly overprescribed, and that has disastrous consequences because it does alter the chemical balance in your brain. When you went in there, believing that Kylie and MI6 were onto you, you didn't have a chemical imbalance in your brain. That's the thing. The chemical imbalance theory has been debunked. Psychiatry now disowns it. It's simply not true. Andrew Skull's recent book, a wonderful book, he looked, he's a sociologist and expert on the history of psychiatry. He said, even if we had a means of measuring serotonin in your brain, we couldn't tell you what was the right level. So we act and move through a cloud of myth and misunderstanding and high finance. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I saw each part of the system. So the second part of my book, Heavy Light, is me finding out about this stuff and finding out about it not just with kind of journalistic zeal, but personal <laughs> search for redemption. Because as far as I was concerned, if I didn't get it right, I was either going to go crazy again or I was going to have a lifetime on lithium. The conspiracy theorists see that the American Psychiatric Association and the DS Diagnostic and Statistical Manual are massively in hock to a big pharma. And they are. 80% of the people who contributed to DSM-5 had received serious amounts of funding from Big Pharma. And Big Pharma has not played a great role. It has played a life-saving role in many treatments, but they no longer invest in research. They take drugs out of the market that are effective because they're no longer profitable. It's not great, to be honest. We haven't had a new... They talk about third-generation antipsychotics, mood stabilizers. We haven't had a new one for 20, 30 years. We call it bipolar now because the patents were running out on drugs that were prescribed for manic depression. When people came back from the war, Second World War, a lot of them had breakdowns, what we'd now call psychotic breakdowns. And they were, their jobs were kept open for them. It was understood they'd had a terrible time. They got better. They went back to work. The rates of recovery were better or as good as ours now. So you can see it's a fairly bleak picture. However, here's the good news. It starts with a sad story. 
the Sami people in northern Finland and Karelia and Lapland had what we would now consider to be the perfect ecologically balanced life. They were reindeer herders, and they had a tradition of oral poetry which rivaled Homer. When it was discovered that they had some fishermen who had 800, 900 lines of verse in mind that they could repeat verbatim day after day, a vast myth cycle about Vainamoinen, the hero, and the witches of the north, and this thing called the Sampo, which is like the world grinding mill. And they had sacred drums, and I was privileged to hear drum dancing and watch it in Greenland. It is absolutely one of the five or six things that's happened to me in my life where everything, uh, it's just, you know, um, well, you, you've all, those of you who remember the 90s know exactly what I'm talking about, like seal. Anyway, um, <laughs> they were very happy, very healthy, very well bonded. They were exactly, um, uh, as Melanie said, you know, a, a loving, communicative, hyper-connected society. Modernity comes, missionaries come, their way of life is scrapped, their sacred drums are burnt, they're told that they're heretics, and surprise, surprise, they go on to develop the highest rates of schizophrenia and psychosis anywhere in Western Europe. Finland, an extraordinary country in terms of mental health, considering they live in the dark and mostly eat either reindeer or sour cheese, an amazingly successful country. Finnish children report themselves the happiest in the world year after year, and we'll come back to them. Finland pioneered a treatment called Open Dialogue. They understood their delusions about... I don't know what the Finnish equivalent of Kylie Minogue is. That must say something. They understood their delusions as a language for a world that the sufferers could no longer bear. Such was mine. I was running so fast to try and keep all these balls in the air. I was so not in control that I came up with an entire world system which allowed me to retain a measure of control. If you see delusion and psychosis as that, rather than an illness, but as an expression of distress, you can treat it. And they did. They listened to them. They had them talk and talk and talk it out. They were unalarmed by them. An open dialogue practitioner said to me, Horatio, if you'd come to me in that state, I would have said to you, what you are thinking and doing, which is obsessive patterning and stuff like is completely normal. It's a normal reaction to the situation in which you find yourself. So if you have a friend who's in awful distress, the first thing to remember is there's nothing wrong with them. What's wrong is the relationship between them and their circumstances, them and their lives. If you start to address it on that level, and not as, I'm your parent, you're going to stop smoking dope, you're going to stop hanging out with your friends, you know, some of this is good advice, but rather, okay, <laughs> between us, we're going to see how we can change things for you. So, have you got meaningful employment? Do you, what do you look forward to? Is there any chance you could raise enough money to get a cheap ticket and just go to Greece and walk back? You know what I mean? If, have you eaten five a day? Are you sleeping enough? When was the last time you kissed somebody? When was the last time you hugged somebody? These are all helpful steps. Open dialogue doesn't just treat the sufferer, it treats the family, it treats the network. It reports return to work rates of 83%. For schizophrenia and psychosis, our return to work rate, and those, most of those people are not medicated, our return to work rate is 100% medicated, 9% return to work. Disaster. Open dialogue is taking off. It's being rolled out. But if I were you, the powerful people of the Paris of the North, I would start agitating for open dialogue trials here as soon as possible. And I would attempt to be, I think, very open. It was a terrible thing the other day. We had a thing at school, my boys' school, 
present your heroes, and sure, a lot of them did Greta Thunberg, and a couple of parents made them do David Attenborough, but who the kids really wanted to do was Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Okay, so Jeff Bezos, the guy who reintroduced slavery to the 21st century, essentially, and a guy who sells cars. Uh, why? Because they've won, haven't they? They have won. Instead of basing our society on love, on honesty, on support, we have based it on competition. And it may be working in some places, but it isn't working for the world. So that's, I think, where I would start. I would ask for much more bravery from the medical profession, and I would ask for a lot more honesty from politics. But the thing is, every time a politician comes on our radio, somebody shouts, get liar sod. You know, what's my, why is my boy going to go into politics? We've got to make good people do good things. And we could start by returning a hell of a lot of money to local government. So I went to Halifax, I interviewed the chief executive, I interviewed everybody for this, but really from the nurse who, and the person who sectioned me and the support workers who were great because they weren't afraid to say what they really thought because they were low status. They said, you'll be all right, H, they'll let you out in two days. I was like, oh, thank fuck, someone said something honestly, you know? Not supposed to tell you that, by the way. All the way up to the MP, and the chief executive of Calderdale Council, a wonderful man called Robin Tuddenham, he said, we're trying to design a healthy society to live in. So for the young people, that just means buses. Otherwise, they're stuck on Satellapram watching Netflix, you know, which is what would happen to Byron or Keats, let's face it, if they'd been born in the era of mass medication. We wouldn't have had all these wonderful poems, and Byron would have had a lot less fun here in Harrogate. <laughs> but it is about designing healthy societies. So in Grenoble, they scrapped public advertising. If you go to Grenoble, there is no advert anywhere bigger than an A4 sheet. That tells you something. And on the grounds of child mental health, that was their argument. So I reckon every social media site ought to have a warning, the same kind of warning that I ignore every time I roll a cigarette. We've got to be honest with our children, and I'm going to hit you with some Latin now. You know, the last thing we should ever do is pretend to them that we're not as mad as they often feel. And there's a great philosopher, Boris has a teleprompter, I've written it on my, and it says, numquam superessere sumus nisi paululalum insanimus. Wonderful philosopher and poet called Seal. <laughs> we're never going to survive, no, we're never going to survive unless we get a little. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.